you know, theology today. And there's probably going to be some things that, well, I'll say this. There's going to be some things that I talk about that you don't fully understand because I don't fully understand them. And if you do feel like you fully understand them, you don't, okay? You don't. It's just, it's the way of God. God is so much bigger, so much more complex than our human minds can truly understand. But it's important for us to think, consider, meditate on the bigness of God. So this morning, I want to talk about that, just the bigness of God and some theological paradoxes. Uh, And so we're going to look at some of these today. And I'm going to stick to my notes maybe a little bit more than normal. And it's not because I don't know what I'm talking about this morning or I don't remember. It's because if I don't stick to my notes, we could be here for a couple hours. Uh, Pastor Gabriel and Pastor Mike and I, we were talking before service about some of this. And it's like, I could just nerd out on, on any one of these four points today and probably talk for hours on them, just of, of all the thoughts and, and opinions and, and different perspectives on these ideas. So today I'm going to try to, you know, kind of, Stick to what were the things I have written down so that we can get out at a reasonable hour. Uh, but the, the title of today's message, if you're taking notes, is Who is God? And if you're not taking notes, I would encourage you to do so today. Uh, you know, on your phone, if you brought uh, a smartphone or if you have a, piece, a pen and paper, to take some notes. Because I do think some things here today uh, that we talk about are complex. But there also might be uh, some, some aspects of God that he wants to reveal to you that might not happen this morning during service. It might happen this week as you think about some of these things, all right? A uh, number of years ago was 2013. So what is that? About 11 years ago, we were living in Salem, Oregon. My, at the time, my wife and I, and we had three kids at the time, and we had gone to this beach out, well, uh, sand by the water. It's not really a beach in Oregon. It's more of a coast because the water's way too cold. You don't get in. It's completely different than what we think of beach life. You know, like you go to the ocean and you wear a jacket and you wear pants. 365, doesn't matter what day of the year you're going, the coast is always about 58 degrees and raining. It's just kind of how it is. We went there one day and it was sunny. It was a beautiful day. And we're at this place called Pacific City Beach. And we drive up and it's one of these really unique places where you can drive your car onto the sand. Uh, and like right next to the ocean. It's also, uh, they actually build boats only for this one beach. They're called dory boats because you can drive your boat directly up into the sand. It's a pretty unique experience. So it was cool. We're having a good time with the kids and everything and enjoying uh, a sunny day at the coast. And then as we're kind of over here, the ocean's in front of us. We're looking at this uh, rock out in the middle of the ocean called a haystack rock. And then we look over to the right and there's this sand dune over there. And there's all these people climbing up the sand dune and then, like, sliding down the sand dune. With, you know, cardboard boxes. And I think one guy even had, like, a snowboard or something kind of going down this huge sand dune. And so uh, our kids, I think Maddie was, like, five or six. Ethan's three or four at the time. And then Ethan goes, Dad, like, points over there. is like, can we go climb that? And we are hundreds of yards away from the sand dune. So I look at the sand dune, and I'm like, yeah. We could totally go do that. Other people are doing that. And so I was like, hey, Brooke, we're going to walk over there. She's like, yeah, great. So she takes care of Nolan, who was just a baby at the time. I take Maddie and Ethan, and we start walking towards this sand dune. And as we begin to walk, the sand dune begins to grow taller, right? Like I'm telling you, someone was putting sand on top of it, and it was just growing like 10 and 20 feet every step. And as we begin to get closer, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I should have said yes to this. 
And then as we get even closer, I'm thinking, there's no way this four-year-old boy is going to make it all the way up. So the reality begins to set in. I'm going to have to carry him if we do this. So I'm like, hey, I don't know if we're going to go. But at this point in time, the kids are like, you said we could. We're doing it. So we get over there and we just start climbing up this sand dune. And I'm telling you, a third of the way up, my legs are burning. My lungs are burning. I'm like, we're not going to make it. But I told these kids we would. And then I look over and Maddie is just like she's just taken up. And she is like almost to the top. And I'm a third of the way. I'm like, okay, well, if she can do it. Dad's got to be able to do it, but Ethan just can't. I mean, he's three or four times. He's just like winding. He's like, Daddy, hold me. Yeah, sure. I throw him on my back and I climb. By the end, I'm literally just like, you know, army crawling to the top. Like winded. We get to the very top of this sand dune and we look out and we see just one of the most beautiful scenes I've ever experienced. We climbed back up a few different times over the years, took pictures. We have a picture on our wall in our house of this beautiful place. And I would have missed out on that experience had I allowed the largeness of that sand dune to deter me from climbing it. But what I really want to pinpoint in this is that the closer I got to that hill, the bigger it was. Right? I had a different perspective, a different respect, a different awe, maybe, dare I say, a different type of fear of that sand dune the closer I was to it. So this morning, I want to just kind of set this, the, the, the scene for us that The closer we get to God, the more we understand about God, the greater our fear of God is in a healthy way, a healthy fear. As we dive into some of these paradoxes today, the more we understand about God, the more we realize we don't understand about God. The closer we get to God, the more we realize how much bigger and how much greater he is than our human minds can understand. And it increases our fear, our respect of him, because we realize he is so much further and farther away from us than we ever realized before. Yet, he's also right next to us at the same time. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says, We know how much God loves us. And we have put our trust in his love. God is love. And all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So I want to start out today. Who is God? God is love. God is love. Now, 1 John 4 here covers one of the most important theological truths about God. That he is love. But this theological truth that God is love isn't to be understood in isolation, but in connection, in conjunction with a much larger understanding of God as well. You know, a side note here I can't cover everything that God is in one message, right? All the books in the entire world could not be filled with all that God is. So our 45 minutes here together or 35 minutes, or if Pastor Gabriel's preaching the next hour and 20 minutes of us here together. I'm just kidding. He, he made a joke the other day that someone says he preaches too long. And I was like, I don't know who says that. I've never told you that. Uh, I love every word that you say, Pastor Gabriel, no matter how long it is. Uh, just kidding. Just kidding. All the books in the entire world, all the sermons ever spoken over the last 2,000 plus years, every word that's ever been spoken about God doesn't encompass all that God is. 
All right, so we're not going to cover everything. We're just going to cover uh, four paradoxical theological truths today. Now, what is a paradox? A paradox are it's when two seemingly opposing items, things that seem like they're in opposition of one another, that they don't work together. It's when they're working t- together in harmony. When two things that, are, that seem like they're opposite are actually coming together and working in harmony. So there are some uh, paradoxes that are going to show the balance, I think. We're going to talk about the complexity, the depth of who God is. Uh, so we're going to talk about four paradoxes, so four different groups of two things that work in relation to one another. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23. Uh, God was speaking through Jeremiah to the priests of Israel at the time, and he's pretty much telling like, all these priests have been doing the wrong things, and he's, he's talking, to Jeremiah, or talking to them through Jeremiah, and he says, Am I a God who is only close at hand? See, the thing is, is that God is close to us, but he is also far away. He says, am I a God who is only close at hand, says the Lord? No, I am far away at the same time. Here's a paradox. He's close and he's far away at the same time. Can anyone hide from me in a secret place? Am I not everywhere in all the heavens and earth, says the Lord. My dad uh, tells a story of when I was a young boy. I was in the back seat. We were driving somewhere, and he just says, out of the blue, I ask him, I said, Dad, what's PMS? And my dad, you know, not wanting to really maybe dive into the details, he just goes, well, it's, it's premenstrual syndrome. And he said, I go, oh, okay. No more inquiry. Like, that was it. He's like, I guess he knew what that meant, but I didn't really want to explain it, you know. And I think sometimes when we look at Scripture and we, we, we hear things about God that we don't necessarily know the detail, we just kind of do. We're like, oh, okay, well, sure, that's what that means. But we don't really think about it and dive deep and ask more questions about it to get a true understanding, okay? Uh, I just thought that was a funny story. Uh, and I got somebody to laugh over there. Thank you, uh, Pastor Jonathan. Uh, but whenever we think about some of these topics we're going to talk about, these paradoxes, I want to really encourage you to sit and think about them this week and to meditate on them, to to mull them over and not just hear them as if, well, yeah, I've heard that before and I've heard that before. Really think about how that there's a balance between these two things. So number one, the first paradox we're going to look at is that God is a person and a spirit. God is a person and a spirit. Okay. God is a person. He's not just a mist. He's not just a presence. He's not an inanimate object or an unfeeling, unemotional, callous entity. God is a personal God. He has feelings. He reciprocates relationships. James 4 says he has a will. See, God is a person with a mind, will, and emotions. God interacts relationally with people. He talks to us. He listens to us. He guides and directs us. God can be pleased and he can be grieved. We are emotional beings because we were created in the image of an emotional God. Okay? God's original plan for humanity was all about relationship. If we look back into Genesis chapter 1 and we see God's original design for humanity is that he created Adam and Eve in the garden and he came and he walked with them and talked with them. He had this personal relationship with Adam and Eve. And that shows us one of the aspects of God is that he's a person. And as a person, okay, as a person, not as an unfeeling, callous entity, but as a person who has a mind, will, and emotion, and emotions, God is all-knowing. Or it's called omniscient. 
See, our God is omniscient. He knows all things at all times. He is all-knowing. Part of the personhood of God is his mind, his all-knowingness, his omniscience. Okay, But not only is he all-knowing and omniscient, God is also all-powerful, or the term is omnipotent. Meaning he has all knowledge, he knows everything past, present, and future, and he has all power. He is all-powerful. There's nothing that God cannot do. Not only is God a person, but along with that, God is also a spirit. So he is person and he's spirit at both uh, at the same time. John chapter 4 says, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And this is Jesus talking. He says, God is spirit. Now, we're going to dive into what the, the Trinity a little bit today. But I love John 4. I see, just to think about that this is Jesus, the Son, who's part of the Trinity, who's part of God, saying God, talking about his Father, but also talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, for God is spirit. And those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. So not only is God a person, but he's a spirit who's not confined to a physical body. When we hear person, we naturally think of a physical body. But a person is not made up of a physical body. If we think about what's going to happen to us after this life is over and we enter into eternity, we are still a person, but we have a different body. We're still mind, will, and emotion. So God is a person, but he's also a spirit. And he transcends all physical and natural limitations. So not only is he all-knowing, not only is he all-powerful, but he is everywhere at all times. He is omnipresent, is what it's called. He's everywhere at all times. Now, David writes about this in the Old Testament. Psalm 139, David writes, he says, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. See, God is everywhere at all times. Now, one of my favorite things to pray is probably what a lot of us like to pray. And it's like, God, be with me in this moment. I pray that anytime I'm going to speak, I'm like, God, be with me today. Or if I'm going into a, a difficult meeting at work or a, I know it's going to be a tense situation, I'm like, God, be with me. God, my words. But when I say God, be with me, what I'm really saying is God, make me more aware of your presence here with me because he's with me all the time. He's never not with me. So there's nothing wrong with saying that prayer or saying God, be with me. But what we're really saying in that moment is God, make me more aware of you sitting right beside me because he's everywhere at all times. He's omnipresent. Jeremiah 23 says, God, we read this moment ago where God says, am I a God just close? No, I'm also a God that's far away. Verse 24, the follow-up verse to that, God says, can anyone hide from me in a secret place? Am I not everywhere in all the heavens and the earth? See, God is a person, but he's also a spirit. Number two, God is one and three. He's one and three at the same time. Now, the word that Christians have uh, come up with to define God as a three, as God as three is the word Trinity. But the word Trinity is not actually found in the Bible. It's a word that we, that the, the Christians created in the 300s to define one of God's characteristics. That's all throughout Scripture. So the, the theology, the understanding of Trinity is all throughout Scripture. But they had to come up with a term that wasn't in Scripture to define what it is. And it's called 
uh, Trinity. So first thing we're going to look at is, is that God is one. See, in contrast to the surrounding nations in the Old Testament, which were polytheistic, meaning they worshipped a bunch of different gods, the Israelites in the Old Testament, they worshipped the God who revealed himself. He revealed himself to them as the one and only true God. Now, the word used all throughout the Old Testament for God is the word Elohim. And the word Elohim is a plural word. Okay, so it's a plural word. So uh, don't think of the word like dear, because dear is singular and plural at the same time. Elohim was plural any time it was used. But uh, the sentence structure surrounding the word, when they use the word Elohim for God, the sentence structure around it were singular sentence structures. And when they talked about how God is plural and singular at the same time, he's one and three at the same time. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So I will say this paradox that God is one and three is one of the most widely misunderstood aspects of God's character. Because we can't really understand it. But what do humans do? We think, well, if we think hard enough, and if we study long enough, we can understand it. So what happens is there's a whole group of Christians that said, nope, they teach God as one only. It's called the oneness doctrine, that there's only one God, that there's not Trinity. And there's others that really teach functionally that God is three separate people and that he's not one. But it's both at the same time. So God is also Trinity, not just one, but Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is not found in Scripture, uh, but the concept of Trinity it became, or it was, it was uh, codified in the Council of Nicaea in Constantinople in A.D. 325 and 381. There's some nerd stuff out there for you. Uh, you can write that down or not. I don't know how relevant that is, really. But the definition of the Trinity has been accepted in what I'll call Orthodox Christianity for 2,000 years now. Okay? So anyone who believes in the uh, accuracy of Scripture also believes in Trinity, that God is three. Even though this idea of the Trinity, this concept of God as one, but also three, is something that we can't really ever understand. And I've heard countless illustrations about God as Trinity. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go into a bunch of them because I think a lot of them really just kind of describe different aspects of how God is one in three. But I would encourage you this week, if this is really one of those concepts that you wrestle with or that maybe even this morning you're thinking like, I don't get that. That's okay. This week, spend some time in prayer because I could tell you all about it, but I think God knows more about himself than even I do. And he'll reveal to you the aspects of himself that he wants you to know in that moment. So dive into scripture. You know, whenever I was a, a, a kid, I was in second grade. My teacher used to travel to Thailand all the time. She loved Thailand. Like every summer she would go there. And my second grade year, I don't know why she, she gave me this, but she gave me a gift and she gave me a pocket knife from Thailand. Different times. Teacher giving a boy in a class a knife. But she gave me this pocket knife and it was, I mean, it was awesome. It was really cool. I remember showing my grandfather who loved knives and he told me how nice it was. And he would, you know, we would cut things with it. And he's like, this is really sharp. You got to be very careful with this. So my, he told my mom, like, this is a really sharp knife. I don't know if he should, you know, have access to this at all times. And so my mom would hide it from me or she would kind of keep it in a safe place. And then I would go and find it and go and cut things. Well, uh, we didn't have a basketball goal set up 
in our driveway. So one day my brother and I had this great idea. We saw someone else had taken like a five-gallon bucket and cut the rim off the five-gallon bucket and screwed it onto the house. And I was a basketball goal. I was like, well, we could do that. And I was like, I got a knife that'll cut it. So I went and I found the knife and I'm there and I'm sawing, you know, with this knife and it's cutting it pretty good. And I get my left hand a, a little too close to my right hand with the knife and I just slice this huge chunk out of my finger. And I mean, to the point where I'm kind of like putting my finger back on itself. But I look at my brother and I was like, don't tell mom. Right? It's like, don't tell mom. Whatever you do, don't tell mom. He's like, I'm not telling mom. It's like, but we got to get a bandaid. It's like, yes, we do need to get a bandaid. We need something just to hold this thing back together. And I really needed stitches. But here's the thing. I wasn't going to tell my mom. So I went and I got a band-aid and I wrapped it up and it's just bleeding everywhere. And I wrapped it up some more and I band-aided it again. And I went and hid it from my mom, you know, for a few days. I just kind of hid this injury from my mother. And then one day she just kind of sees like it's still bleeding through. She says, what happened? And I'm like, nothing. Well, you have a band on your finger. What happened? She got cut. Well, how did it get cut? It doesn't matter. I just, it got cut. And then, you know, it was revealed to be a much bigger injury than I, I uh, was leading up for it to be. And the thing is, is she came in and she helped me address the wound the way it needed to be addressed. I was hiding it from the one person in the house who cared the most about, you know, my brother didn't care about my finger. He just cared about not getting in trouble, Right. The one person who cared the most about me, I tried to hide the wound from. But she came in and she saw it and she's like, okay, we really need to take care of this properly. And she came in and she took care of it. See, the thing is, is sometimes we we try to hide from God. And that's what David was talking about in Psalm 139. He says, I can't go anywhere to hide from you, yet sometimes I, I, I try. I try to hide my sin. I try to hide my, imper- my imperfection from you, God, but God's like, you can't hide from me. And I just want to come in. And even though I'm far away, I'm also close. And I want to help you in your time of need. This leads us into number three is that God is imminent and he's transcendent. Now, these are two really big words. And I considered uh, just saying God is close and far away. That's kind of what these two things mean. But I think that it's important sometimes for us to really consider words that are bigger uh, than, and more um, that carry more weight than just close and far away. Because this word imminent, that God is imminent, it means that he's indwelling, that he is inherent with his creation. The word imminent means indwelling and inherent. See, that God's imminence means that he is present and he is active in his creation. So he is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. We can't hide from him, but he's also imminent, which means he's right next to us actively working in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Now, deists uh, believe that God set creation in motion, and then he just kind of left it to just do its thing. God just said, he created it, and it's like, here you go. And he just watches from afar, but doesn't participate. Scripture teaches the opposite, that God participates in his creation. He is imminent. He is indwelling. He is with us. Acts 17, verse 27. Paul says, 
God's purpose, his purpose was for the nations to seek after him, to seek after God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. He is inherent. He is close by. For in him, in God, we live and move and exist. When Maddie, our oldest, was four, uh, she played soccer. And this was our first experience as parents with a child playing sports. And so like an idiot, I volunteered to coach the soccer team. And so they were like, would somebody coach? And I was like, yeah, I'll coach. I played soccer. I've, you know, did that all growing up. And I can teach a bunch of four-year-olds how to play soccer. Little did I know that our daughter, as wonderful as she is, the last person that she is going to listen to on any sort of sports field is her father. So I'm coaching soccer and all the other kids are listening, but my daughter just decides that she doesn't want to listen because it's her dad. But let me tell you, coaching four-year-old soccer is an interesting experience. It's very different. I've now coached, you know, baseball, basketball, all kinds of different things. And coaching soccer for four-year-olds is completely different. Because when you coach basketball for a 10-year-old or 14-year-old, like I'm, you know, helping coach my son's team now, what you do is you stand on the sidelines and you give instructions and some coaches yell. I'm a yeller. You know, I like to, to give instructions and talk loud and other coaches are quiet. But you stand on the sidelines. Coaching four-year-old soccer, the expectation is that you are running the entire game. Because they're like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to coach and be the ref at the same time on the field with all the cats. Because that's what four-year-old kids are. They're just cats. You're just herding cats towards the ball. You're like, hey, everyone, we're going this way. And so I'm coaching soccer. And one game, I'm out there. And I'm running, you know, telling kids what to do while also being the referee. And one of our kids is over by the goal. And all of a sudden, I find that the ball is right in front of me. And everyone else is over there. And they're running towards me. But he's next to the goal. And so I just kind of give him a pass. And he kicks it in. And we scored a goal. And I thought that was awesome. And all the parents were angry because that's not allowed. Whenever we think about life and God and all of that, a lot of us, we have different perspectives of how God interacts with us in our lives. And a lot of us view God as, as a coach on the sidelines who's just sitting there silent watching the game take place. A lot of us view God as the coach on the sidelines who's screaming and who's demanding that we do certain things. Some of us feel like God's on the sidelines and he's encouraging and he's yelling instructions and, and he's encouraging. But the reality is, is that God is always on the field with us. No matter where we are, he's right next to us saying, hey, come over here. The ball's right here. I need you to go this way. And then you can go that way. He's teaching us. He's instructing us. He's participating with us. And he's refereeing us at the same time. He's doing it all much better than I did in my one season as a soccer coach. And I never coached it again and won't because, especially for four-year-olds, that's, I, that was not fun. I don't know how God does it. God is not only imminent, but he's transcendent. So he's here with us. He's on the field. He's participating. He's instructing. He's guiding. He's comforting. He's right there with us, but he's also transcendent. Now, what transcendent means is exceeding usual limits, surpassing, or quite literally being beyond comprehension. See, God is not only with us. God is not only everywhere at all times, but he is separate from his creation at the same time. Not only are his, is he in every aspect of his creation, he is also separate from his creation. See, God must exist for us to exist. 
If God didn't exist, we couldn't exist. Because in Him we live, we move, and we exist. All of creation is made possible because God breathed it into existence. He said, He spoke it into existence, then He breathed His life into it, and it all depends on Him. We are completely dependent on God for existence. We must rely on God to exist, but He doesn't need for us to exist for Him to exist. See, we are dependent on Him, but He is independent from us. See, God can claim all 7 billion people on the earth as dependents on His tax return. Okay? And let me tell you, when your kids turn 17, life changes for your taxes. Found that out. That's awesome. Um, We have a 17-year-old now. Taxes are now different, so that's wonderful. But God... Even though we are dependent on him, he is not dependent on us. God is beyond human understanding to characterize, analyze, or define. Acts chapter 17, Paul, in this same chapter, he says, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. Our God doesn't need anything. He has no needs. He is transcendent. He is separate from his creation. Yet he himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. So he is imminent, yet he is also transcendent at the same time. Number four. God is holy, and he is love. This is the the fourth and final paradox. We're going to spend a little bit more time here because I think these are two terms that we hear a lot in Christian life. And because we hear them a lot, sometimes the gravity of what they really mean can get lost on us. When we say that God is holy, that word holy, it it very literally translates to to mean set apart. But God's holiness really speaks to his absolute perfection. God is perfect in every way. We read a moment ago, he has no needs. He is perfect and he has no needs at all. So here's the thing. Because God is holy and because he is perfect, no imperfection can exist around him. It's why no one has ever seen God. It's why in the Old Testament, when Moses was meeting with God the Father on Mount Sinai and he said, show me your face, God said, you can't see my face. If you see it, you would die. Because God is so perfect that if Moses, in his imperfect human form, were to see God's perfection, he would cease to exist in, on the earth. So he would die. He would have to leave the earth because God is so perfect, no imperfection can be around him. Any imperfection ceases to exist. So, in God's perfection, in his holiness, we as, humanities who are, as hu- humans who are imperfect shouldn't be allowed in any way to be around or close to him because he's holy. So he is holy, but he is also love at the same time. It's his perfection that demanded a sacrifice for our sins. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. To set the scene here, John is having a revelation. That's why it's called revelation, because John has this revelation. Jesus comes and talks to John 
and reveals these things to him. And John here is looking at the throne room of God. And he sees that in verse 8, each of these living beings that he sees, these uh, beings surrounding the throne, each of them had six wings. And their wings were covered, or their, uh, and their wings were covered all their, were covered over, <laughs> all covered over with eyes. <laughs> Let's run it back. Each of these living beings had six wings. And their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. See, the sentence structure itself was so confusing that I got lost in it. But all these wings were covered with eyes. Day after day and night after night, they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. The one who always was, who is and who is still to come. There's so much here in this verse that these beings that are beyond our comprehension are saying holy, perfect, and set apart. Holy, perfect, and set apart. Perfect in every way is the Lord God Almighty. And then they speak here to his eternal nature. He always was. See, God doesn't have a beginning. He never started. And this, God as an eternal being, the fact that he always was, he is now, and he's still to come, this concept of God, and this, is some, this theological truth has, has really caused me a lot of, uh, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if angst is the right word, but it's like it's something I've really tried to wrap my head around a lot over the years. Uh, I like to study. I like to read. I like to learn things. Uh, I like, you know, I'm always reading, trying to learn something new. And so when I encounter something in scripture that doesn't make sense to me, I really try to dive in. I really try to study and try to learn it. And God being uh, this uh, person in this spirit who's always existed and doesn't have a beginning, it's really been hard for me to grasp over the years. Now, I can kind of grasp that I'm going to live eternally. You know, like if you're familiar with math, like it's uh, there's a term, it's it's a ray. It has something that has a beginning, but has no wind. It's like a dot. And then there's a line with an arrow. And all you guys are like, come on, I'm way too old to remember math terms. But I always felt like that was a perfect, you know, kind of picture of of humanity. We have a beginning and then we just kind of exist forever. Now, one day this life is going to end and we're going to still exist forever in heaven or in hell. That's just reality. It's God's very nature, it's God's very essence that keeps us alive for eternity, no matter where we are for eternity. But we have this beginning, and that, that can kind of make sense to me that we live forever, because, like, I get it, you know, like, I, I was born, and then I'm going to die, but my spirit, you know, myself, I continue to exist. But the idea that there was no beginning, that God doesn't have a beginning, it's just really confusing and it's hard for me to understand. And so sometimes I just sit and I just think about it. I'm like, how does that work? How does God not even have a beginning? And then I begin to think, okay, well, we live within the construct of time. So the only thing we can understand is time. God lives outside of the construct of time. And I'm not talking like Loki that series on Disney Plus, like, you know, He Who Remains. That's not what I'm talking about, all right? Although, pretty good series if you haven't seen it. Uh, 
But the fact is that God always was. He has always been perfect. He has always been love. He has always been imminent. He has always been transcendent. He has always been three. He has always been one. When I look at Scripture and I think about the Trinity, sometimes I can think about, okay, well, God, at one point, He was just one, and then He split Himself into three. But no, it says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has always been three. He has always been one. He always was. He is. And He is still to come. God is holy. He is perfect in every way. But not only is He holy, He is love. 1 John 4, we read it earlier, verse 8, the last part of this. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Worship team, if you could join me. We're going to close out here in just a few minutes. See, there is this tension between love and holiness. And we hear these terms a lot, so I think sometimes we don't realize that they're a paradox. That God's grace And his forgiveness comes out of his love, but it's his perfection that demands the sacrifice. It's his perfection that demands a payment for sin, but it's his love that provided that payment at no cost to us. See, because we're humans and because we are flawed, we can sometimes over-index on his holiness and his perfection We can over-index on his judgment and become afraid of God. Sometimes, because we're flawed and imperfect, we can over-index on his love and his grace. We're so grateful for his grace. We're so uh, grateful that no matter how many mistakes we make, he continually forgives us that we over-index on his love. And we just think like he's this cool friend that gets to hang out with us. And we forget how big and how perfect and how awesome he really is. And that's what this whole series is about. It's kind of like getting us back into a balance of understanding that God is so much bigger, so much greater than we can understand. We are to have a healthy fear, a healthy awe and respect and fear of this God that we can't truly understand. And that healthy fear that we have makes us even more grateful for the grace and the love that we're extended. I've heard it said so many times that, well, if we have the right amount of fear of God, it'll stop us from sinning. It can stop us. And I'm like, I get that concept a little bit. But sometimes I think it's like, well, if I only understand the the fear of God, that I'm going to be afraid. It's not necessarily going to stop me because I don't necessarily understand the forgiveness and grace. But if I understand the forgiveness and grace, but I don't have the healthy fear. It's, I got to have both of those things. I have to have a healthy understanding that it's God's perfection that demanded the sacrifice, and then it's his love that provided that sacrifice, and I didn't do anything. I just get to receive it. John three sixteen. It's a pretty good verse, if you've never heard it. For God loved the world so much, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God is holy. God is imminent. He's transcendent. He's a person. 
He's a spirit. He's three and he's one. He is above all, more powerful than all. And he is love. And in his vast love, he has invited us to live in him. See, there's this, um, there's these verses, a collection of verses in Hebrew, uh, in, in the book of Hebrews, that talk about how that God, that Jesus is our mediator between us and God. See, here's the thing. Because God is perfect, we couldn't exist around God the Father because of our imperfection. So Jesus placed himself in between us and the Father. And he's this mediator, constantly pleading, interceding on our behalf because he provided that sacrifice for us. And in God's vast love, he said, I'm going to not only give my son as a sacrifice for your sins, I'm going to invite you, invite each of us into a personal relationship, into this intimate relationship. He's invited us to live in him. He's invited us to know him deeply. He's invited us to experience him greatly. And as we live in him, as we know him deeply, as we experience God greatly, our love grows more perfect. 1 John four seventeen. As we live in God, so this is, we just read verse John, uh, 1 John 4, 16, that God is love. Anyone who does not love doesn't know God because God is love. And those who live in love live in God. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. Our love grows more perfect as we live in God. So what is a litmus test for us to know? Are we living in God? Are we experiencing and understanding and having a healthy fear of God? What's the litmus test? Do I have a healthy fear of God? Do I have a healthy understanding of his love? What's the litmus test? Is my love growing more perfect? Am I loving God more? Am I loving others more than I did last year? Are, am I growing in love? Living in God is about progress, not perfection. It's just about progress, not perfection. Are we progressing? Are we growing in our love to God? Are we growing in our love towards others? Jesus said when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two things they go hand in hand. Sometimes we think, well, he said love God first, so that's the priority. Maybe. But the reality is, is that God is love and he loves every single one of us the same. He doesn't love me more than you. He doesn't love Pastor Gabriel more than you. He doesn't love me more than Pastor Gabriel. He doesn't love any of us more than anyone else. His love for all of us is full and complete. It's at 100% at all times. And as we get to know God, as we grow in love for God, our love for others also grows. We can grow in knowledge of God and not grow in love. Because if we're growing in love for God, we're going to grow in love for others as well. As our understanding of God grows, our fear of God grows. And as our fear of God grows, our love of God grows and others grows as well.
Let's pray. You can close your eyes with me this morning. And in a minute after I pray, I'm going to have you stand up. We're going to have some prayer partners here up front to pray with you. Our worship team is going to go back into a song and we're just going to spend some time appreciating our God. But before we do that, I just want to mention, if, if you've come in today and you need prayer, we want to pray with you. Our prayer team truly loves and desires to pray with you because prayer is a powerful thing. As I said a moment ago, Jesus is our mediator. He intercedes on our behalf to God the Father. But also, we can do the same for one another. We can intercede for one another. When we pray for one another, powerful things take place. Just throwing that out there. If you need prayer whatsoever, we want to pray with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us so much more than we deserve. God, we thank you that even in your holiness and in your perfection, you didn't look down on humanity and all the sin and all the mistakes and just say, I'm going to start all over and wipe us all out. But instead, you said, because you, because you loved us so much, you sent your son to die on the cross so that we could be made new, we could be forgiven, we could be set free. Father, I pray that each and every one of us in here today, that we would grow in our fear of you. And that out of that, our love would grow more perfect. God, I pray for anyone in here who's just going through a rough time, who's going through a rough season. God, I pray that right now you would show them that you are on the field with them. You are in the game. You are right next to them, ready to comfort, ready to guide, ready to teach, ready to heal, ready to redeem, that you are with us. God, I pray for everyone in here that's just, life is going great at the moment. God, I pray that we would, uh, even if life is going great, that we wouldn't forget about how you've brought us to this place. God, I pray that throughout this series that we would have a greater understanding of what it means to have a healthy fear. We would learn to fear you in Jesus' name.